Hello again and welcome back to another episode of Digging Up the Past. Petros Kutupis here and today we will dive into a very fascinating topic. Honestly, in my personal opinion, it is long overdue. We are going to discuss Aeneas. This mythical Trojan hero has been brought up in at least two or three past episodes, so I felt it was time to dedicate a whole episode to him and why not? In the Roman mythology that we know today, Aeneas is the ancestor of the Roman nation. Romulus, the mythical founder of Rome, traces his lineage all the way back to Aeneas himself. The story of Aeneas, though, begins long before Rome came into existence, and while the Romans lay claim to what should be considered a purely mythological patriarch, is there any historical basis to both the man and the epic in his name? Now, before we go on our quest to find Aeneas, we must first look to the author of the epic, the Aeneid, which catalogs Aeneas's adventures. And that author is uh, Virgil, born on October 15th, 70 BCE. Publius Virgilius Maro, or Virgil, would be regarded as one of Rome's greatest poets. His works, preserved in the Eclogues, the Georgics, and the Aeneid, have helped defend fine and shape Western civilization as a whole. And despite this, very little is known of the poet himself. Tradition has it that a now lost biography of Virgil was written by his close friend and editor Varius, who lived from 74 to 14 BCE. It is through later commentaries that we can reconstruct the original source of this biography. Although, it is evident that these commentaries seem to make assumptions based on Virgil's poetry and allegorizing, producing their fair share of problems. And according to this same tradition, Virgil was born in the village of Andes, a part of northern Italy near Mantua, to a humble family. Modern scholars argue the latter solely on the fact that Virgil did receive an extensive and expensive education attending schools in Cremona, Mediolanum, Rome, and Naples. Shortly after considering a career in rhetoric and law, a young Virgil would instead turn his talents to poetry. I mean, come on, that does sound like an upper-class upbringing. Unfortunately, though, Virgil would never relish in his newfound fame as a poet. Commissioned under Augustus to legitimize his reign, His incomplete and finest work, the Aeneid, would be published and well-received posthumously. On his deathbed, Virgil did give clear instructions to Varius to destroy all copies of the epic. Obviously, this did not happen. Virgil died on September 21st, 19 BCE. Okay, now that we have covered enough information about the author of the epic, which extensively features and stars our Trojan hero, we can now move on to the epic itself, the Aeneid. What made the Aeneid so special? The protagonist and main character of the epic was a demigod, the son of a Trojan prince, Anchises, who was cousin to King Priam of Troy, and the goddess Aphrodite, Uh, who is uh, Venus to the Romans. The Aeneid records the wanderings of Aeneas alongside his fellow Trojan refugees from Troy to eventually colonizing Italy and uniting all of Latium. Aeneas became the legendary forefather of Romulus and Remus and in turn the Romans. 
his tale would be heralded as a national epic. What I find funny is that Aeneas is a minor character in the Greek epic cycle, also known as the Trojan Cycle, which is a collection of ancient Greek epic poems related to the story of the Trojan War. This includes both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the best part is, he is saved twice from death by the gods in this epic cycle, as if for an as yet unknown destiny. The Iliad alludes to Aeneas and his ultimate survival of the Trojan War when the Trojan warrior was pitted in a face-to-face combat with the vengeful Achilles, following the loss of his dear and close friend Patroclus to Hector. Book 20, lines 300 to 308 of the Iliad reads, But come, let us lead him out of death, lest the son of Cronos be angry in some way if Achilles slays him. For it is fated for him to escape, so that the race of Dardanus may not perish without seed and be seen no more. Dardanus, whom the son of Cronos loved above all the children born to him from mortal women. For now has the son of Cronos come to hate the race of Priam. And now surely will the mighty Aeneas be king among the Trojans and his son's sons who will be born in the days to come. Traditions of Aeneas and his migration from the Dardanelles spread throughout the Roman world. The first connection between Aeneas, his travels, and the founding of the Roman civilization can be dated to as early as the writings of the 3rd century BCE land poet Navius. It is generally believed that the works of Navius greatly inspired Virgil. We also have the Tabula Iliaca, a Roman monument dating to the Augustan era and originally erected at Beauvais, 12 miles southeast of Rome. It illustrates scenes from the fall of Troy and under the scene depicting Aeneas and his father Anchises, who is carrying the sacred objects and departing for Hesperia, an inscription reads, Sack of Troy, according to Stesichoris. Now, modern scholars remain skeptical with this citation. Part of the Trojan cycle, the Iliupersis, or the Sack of Ilium, you know, which is a lost Greek epic tale that survives only in fragments, was originally believed to be, have been composed by the 6th century BCE poet Stesichoris. Now, its original author remains a mystery, and whether or not there is a poetic text alluding to Aeneas still remains to be validated. It is traditions such as these, among many others circulating at the time, that would have produced all sorts of legends in which Virgil would weave together into a single and comprehensive narrative, of course, with artistic liberties. I think that it goes without saying that the Aeneid was greatly inspired by Homer and his Iliad and Odyssey. For instance, Aeneas's love affair with Dido shows many parallels to that of Odysseus, with uh, Ulysses to the Romans, and Calypso in the Odyssey. The funeral games of Patroclus in Book 23 of the Iliad also mirrors the competitions held by Aeneas on the anniversary of his father's death. Aeneas's descent into the underworld shows many similarities to that of Odysseus and his voyage to the realm of Hades. Coincidentally, the Sibyl guiding Aeneas through the underworld would later inspire Dante Alighieri and his divine comedy in which Virgil guides Dante through both the Inferno, which is hell, and purgatory. Both Odysseus and Aeneas narrowly escaped the violent Cyclops Polyphemus. 
The connections made between the Aeneid and the Trojan War epics do not end there. And unlike the, its earlier counterparts, the tales serve more for political agenda and less for entertainment. As I had mentioned earlier, it was commissioned to legitimize an Augustan rule. And for those who are interested in learning more of this epic, but are unwilling to read it in its entirety, the Roman historian Livy provides an abbreviated version in his book one of the history of Rome. Historically, the literary evidence does not stretch as far back in time as we would like. This leaves us with the archaeology of the Mediterranean during what has been considered a very volatile period in our human history, that being the collapse of the Late Bronze Age period and the Dark Age of the Eastern Mediterranean circa 1200 BCE. Can we validate whether Aeneas was the traditional ancestor of Romulus and Remus? the former being the founder of Rome at 758 or 728 BCE, or just a later, possibly 5th century BCE or later addition to legitimize Rome's position in the ancient world. It is difficult to know, and it is also evident that stories of Aeneas's escape from Troy circulated the ancient world. Depictions of Aeneas carrying his lame father and Chizis in battle and away from the carnage were painted on ancient Greek vases and exported throughout the entire Mediterranean, and specifically to the Terranean region along the western coast of Italy and its nearby islands. In these early illustrations that predate the written sources, it is still unclear whether there were any connections with the Italian mainland. For instance, in his work The Theogony, the 8th century BCE Greek poet, Hesiod stated that the following as it relates to Aeneas and the Italian mainland. Well-garlanded Kytheria bore Aeneas, mingling in lovely desire with the hero Anchises on the peaks of many-valleyed windy Ida. Circe, the daughter of Hyperion's son Helios, in love with patient-minded Odysseus, gave birth to Agrius and Latinus, excellent and strong, and she bore Telegonus because of golden Aphrodite. These ruled over all the much-renowned Terranians far away in the innermost part of the Holy Islands. According to Hesiod, it is the descendants of Odysseus who came to rule the Terranian region, including the Italian mainland following the Trojan War. And there is no connection with Aeneas and this region. What makes this more interesting is that Hesiod is often paired with Homer, his near-contemporary and they are both said to have lived at approximately the same time in history. If the earlier sources did not display an association with Aeneas and the Italian region, then how did this change? Now, can we validate to some extent the travels of an Anatolian group of migrants moving westward, departing from the eastern Mediterranean, and eventually settling somewhere west and in the Tyrrhenian Sea? Can we identify a foreign ethnic group on Italian soil, either on the mainland or one of its many islands, that appeared or thrived sometime before turning into legend and forming the foundation of Roman mythology? If so, did it occur during the tail end of the Late Bronze Age? And did the migrations of the Sea Peoples during the end of the Late Bronze Age provide a backstory to these later stories of Aeneas? Ancient tradition implied that the heroic age ended with our surviving heroes of legend dispersing to the ends of the world or earth. 
In his works and days, Hesiod writes, There for these the end of death was misted about them. But on others, Zeus, son of Cronos, settled a living in a country of their own, apart from humankind, at the end of the world. And there they have their dwelling place and hearts free of sorrow in the islands of the blessed by the deep swirling stream of the ocean. Prospering heroes, on whom in every year three times over the fruitful grain land bestows its sweet yield. It suggests that the myth was referring to the great migrations of the sea peoples, inspiring the Greeks and the later Romans of the classical age to tell tales of our heroes from the Trojan epic, wandering around the Mediterranean and in some cases settling in new lands. Tradition, both ancient and modern, maintained that the Etruscans were a likely candidate for being those exact migrants. But can we prove this? The Aeneas myth seems to be a very popular one in ancient Etruria, enough so that archaeologists have discovered a multitude of terracotta statues and vase art depicting Aeneas carrying his father Anchises. These vases date from the last two decades of the 6th century BCE, and while Rome was under the political dominion of the Etruscans. It may be surprising to hear, but the archaeology of the Roman region does suggest a Roman takeover of the Aeneas myth sometime in the early 5th century. What I mean is, archaeologists have yet to find artifacts portraying Aeneas that predate the 5th century BCE. At least they haven't found anything yet. But we observe the exact opposite in Etruria. We find that the Etruscans cherished Aeneas. Here is the thing. I covered the Etruscans and their origins quite extensively in episode 6 of this podcast, so I won't spend too much time on them here. I will instead provide a general summary. The Etruscans emerged in what was Etruria, which is modern-day Tuscany, in the western and central regions of Italy north of Latium. Their civilization extended from the Po Valley down to the boundaries of ancient Latium. While their origins are continuously debated in the academic world, one thing is for certain. We can trace their culture to as early as the 10th or 9th century BCE. They emerged as a great power by the start of the 6th century BCE, and their influence and in art would be shared with the rest of the Mediterranean world. They were contemporaries of the ancient Greeks, the nations of the Near East, Carthage, and later in history, Rome. The Etruscans were a powerful force with a strong navy, and they were masters of the sea. The difficulty in understanding the Etruscan culture stems from the fact that not much of this culture survived. And despite deciphering this unique Etruscan language, very few inscriptions using a similar alphabet introduced by ancient Greek merchants have been discovered. And of the few discovered, we are left with more questions than answers to this mysterious group of peoples. Besides, these inscriptions never give us insight into the culture itself, only their rituals which were foreign to their neighbors of the time. What makes matters worse is that the classical and biased writers tended to portray the Etruscans in a negative light. A good part of Etruscan architecture, mythologies, deities, and artistic style was adopted and adapted from neighboring Greeks. That is not to say that they didn't have their own deities and traditions, but one thing is for certain. The Etruscans loved Homeric epics. 
We find illustrations and references to these Homeric tales throughout all of Etruria, most of which we dug up in Etruscan tombs. What can I say? The Greeks were great at influencing other cultures. And by the 4th century, and as Rome got more powerful, the Romans expanded into Etruscan territories and essentially swallowed them up. And in turn, Etruscan culture and traditions were sometimes adopted while others were forgotten to time. This could have included the story surrounding Aeneas. But why was there such an attachment to Aeneas? That is because during classical times, ancient traditions claimed that the Etruscans were not native to their land they inhabited, which is weird because the recent DNA evidence does suggest that they were indigenous. Anyway, according to ancient historians, the ancient Etruscans or Turanians were originally Pelasgians who migrated to the Italian mainland from Lydia, which was located in southwestern Anatolia, by way of Greek, the Greek island Lemnos. We even find stories such as these in Herodotus' book one of his histories. We also find this Lydian tradition reflected in book two of the Aeneid. Long exile is your lot, a vast stretch of sea you must plow, and you will come to the land of Hesperia, where amid the rich fields of husbandmen the Lydian Tiber flows with gentle sweep. While in book four of his Peloponnesian War, Thucydides claims the following. There is a small Chalcidian Greek element, but the majority of Pelasgians descended from the Etruscans who once inhabited Lemnos and Athens, or else Bisaltians, Christonians, or Edonians. Again, I cover more details on the Etruscans in episode 6, along with possible connections with the island of Lemnos, but in the end, the DNA of the ancient deceased does not corroborate this. So then, if the Etruscans were indigenous to the region, then why were the ancient historians so insistent on the Etruscans being refugees resettling in Italy? Did they adopt the story and lineage of another group of migrants? Earlier, I made a reference to the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples, or the Peoples of the Sea, were an enigmatic confederacy of seafaring raiders from the central and eastern Mediterranean who sailed east and invaded Anatolia, Syria, Canaan, Cyprus, and Egypt toward the end of the Bronze Age. The term used to refer to these foreign migrants is derived from ancient Egyptian sources in which we have numerous documented accounts of battles involving them. The Sea Peoples have been credited for devastating the region and bringing entire nations and whole empires to an end. They pillaged and plundered and burned whole cities as they passed through. I have mentioned these Sea Peoples during many episodes and have also dedicated the entire episode 10 to them. But for now, I will focus on a specific group of this confederation of migrants identified as the Sheridan or the Shardana. They inhabited the Near East and primarily served as mercenaries looking for opportunity. The Sheridan likely migrated eastward and from the Tyrrhenian Sea and the island of Sardinia, which is directly opposite of Etruria. Although some scholars have speculated that it went the other way around. That is, the Sheridan started in the east, and via some mass exodus they traveled to the west and eventually settled on the island sharing their name later inspiring the travels of Aeneas, but can we prove this westward migration? 
The earliest connection one can make of the Sheridan with Sardinia comes from a 9th or 8th century BCE Phoenician stela inscription discovered from the ancient Sardinian city of Nora containing the word Sardana. The archaeological evidence draws attention to similarities of the Sheridan in Egyptian depictions when compared with statue menhirs discovered in southern Corsica and the many neuragic bronze statuettes of warriors with similar horned helmets found in Sardinia. However, these statuettes were produced centuries after the original Sheridan. The Nuragic period of Sardinia starts at approximately 1600 BCE and ends shortly before the Phoenician occupation at 850 BCE. The Nuragic culture takes its name from the Nuragi, which are ancient constructions that dot the island of Sardinia, which in the ancient Sardic language simply translates to heap of stones. The buildings are built of stone and vary in size. Its functions are largely unknown, and scholarly opinions differ sharply. Regardless of its role in ancient Sardinian culture and society, similar structures have also been found elsewhere in the Mediterranean, such as the East. It has been proposed by archaeologist Adam Zertal that the Sheridan site of Elawat, home to the biblical figure Sisera, was a neurogic site. This is the same site sung about in the Song of Deborah found in the Book of Judges. And through a process of elimination, Zertal was able to conclude that the occupants of Elahuat were connected with Sardinia, implying that the Sheridan did not migrate from east to west, but instead from west to east and looking for opportunity and a new way of life. This leads us to believe that it seems highly unlikely that the Sheridan inspired the stories of Aeneas and his journey westward from Troy. By Book 5 of the Aeneid, Aeneas and his fellow Trojan refugees make their way to the island of Sicily. It is here that Aeneas organizes the funeral games for the anniversary of his father's death. We have boat and foot races, uh, a boxing match, and even an archery contest. It is also on Sicily that the men are nearly stranded without a way to reach the Italian mainland when Juno, who is the goddess Hera to the Greeks, via her messenger Iris, incites the Trojan women to burn the fleet. However, her plans are immediately thwarted when Aeneas prays to Jupiter, the Greek Zeus, to douse the flames with a torrential rainstorm. These events are followed by Aeneas receiving a vision from his father to venture to the underworld to receive a vision of his and Rome's future, mirroring that of Odysseus' trip to the underworld in the Odyssey. Derived from the name of the inhabitants of the eastern part of the island, the Sicoloi, the island was given to the Roman province under the, under the name Sicilia in 241 BCE. In Homeric times, though, the island was routinely referred to as Thrinacria or Thrinacia, in Greek, Thrinakia, which translates to having three headlands for its triangular shape. While at the far edge of the Mycenaean Empire during the Late Bronze Age, it is generally believed that the island took part of the general Mediterranean trade in some form. And as the palace economies of Greece began to deteriorate at the end of the Bronze Age, disrupting links with the Aegean, it did not stop the island from forming new relationships with southern Italy and the western Mediterranean due to this uh, economic and political realignment. 
By the 8th century BCE, the island of Sicily was divided into three distinct chiefdoms or tribal entities, the Elemians to the west, the Sicils to the east, and the Sicani between the two. The Elemians residing in western Italy are of particular interest here. Their origins are unclear. Unfortunately, they are largely indistinguishable from their Sicani neighbors in central Sicily, and the archaeological record of the early Iron Age corroborates that. We're talking about between the 12th to 8th centuries BCE. However, early Greek and Latin writers give the Elemians their very own identity, standing them apart from the Sicani. Again, very little is known of these peoples due to the extremely limited and fragmented surviving texts dated to between the 6th and 4th centuries BCE, and using the Greek alphabet mostly found in votive deposits at uh, the Elemian site of Segesta. Despite the Italians being materially present on the island from the 11th century and on, and mostly in the northeast of the island, the Elemians seem to have adopted many aspects of their culture from Greek colonists, further complicating their identification. The fact that so little is known of these mysterious Elemians have led many scholars to propose that they are of Anatolian origin, although this theory continues to be disputed. Segesta remained as one of the largest Elemian cities, the others being Eryx and Antella, all located in the northwestern part of the island. Segesta's origins and foundations are obscure, but Greek traditions ascribed its foundation to a band of Trojan refugees. In Book 6 of his Peloponnesian War, Thucydides writes, During the capture of Troy, some of the Trojans managed to escape the Achaeans and made their way by ship to Sicily, where they settled land adjoining the Sicanians. Their generic name was the Elemians, and their cities were called Eryx and Agesta. Their settlement was joined by a number of Phocians who had fought at Troy and been driven by a storm first to Libya and from there to Sicily. This tradition was readily welcomed and immediately adopted by the Romans as it confirmed the travels of Aeneas. Some traditions, though, consider the Elimi as descendant from the Trojans, while others claim that the Elimi were already present by the time the Trojans arrived at the island and founded both Segesta and Eryx. In 1882, French Egyptologist Gaston Maspero once suggested that the sickles of the island of Sicily were related to the Shekelesh, which was another tribe of the Sea Peoples. Did any of the Shekelesh migrate westward from the eastern Mediterranean and eventually settle on the island? We have yet to find any evidence corroborating such a theory. The challenge with the Aeneid is that it is told over a millennia after the migration of the Sea Peoples. Its cast and their relationships were meant to reflect the social-political situation occurring in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire during its compilation. The epic was commissioned by the Emperor Augustus, then known as Octavian, shortly after his successful campaign against Mark Antony and the infamous Cleopatra of Egypt. These events followed the assassination of Julius Caesar, and the situation between the two rivals was extremely tense. Was the brief love affair between Aeneas and Dido symbolically connected with Mark, Antony, and Cleopatra? Was their breakup intended to provide a backstory as to why Carthage was Rome's largest adversary? It is very possible that certain aspects of the poem preserve real characters, 
For instance, Belus, Dido's father, is believed to be a Latin corruption of Balasir II, who ruled Phoenician Tyre, located in modern-day Lebanon in 841 BCE. It has also been suggested that his successor, Pygmalion, was the brother of Dido, who chased her out of the land she once called home, after which she founded the city of Carthage. By the time Aeneas and his fellow Trojans arrive on the Italian mainland, at the site of Lavinium, an alliance is made with the king Latinus, and they are immediately at war with the Etruscans. Technically, it is with the Rutulian prince Turnus that both the Trojans and Latium are quarreling with over the hand of Lavinia, who is the daughter of King Latinus, an obvious parallel to Homer's Helen with Paris and Menelaus. The Greeks knew Turnus as Tyrannus, the Etruscan. The mythological Etruscan king, Mezentius, aids Turnus in this war against Aeneas. Like the late dating of the Dido story, the fact that uh, the Etruscans played a prominent role also suggests a late date to the second half of the epic. Now, is there definitive proof that ancient Anatolians, led by an Aeneas or an Aeneas prototype at the end of the Bronze Age, ventured west and eventually settled somewhere within the Italian region? While archaeologists have discovered connections between the eastern Mediterranean with the west, unfortunately, there is not enough evidence to reach such a conclusion. Lucia Vagnetti of the, okay, I'm going to try my best to pronounce this here, Instituto Pergli Studi Misenae ed Egeo Anatolisi in Rome summarized it best. Although it is important to recognize in the end that the entire problem of the Sea Peoples is complicated by the fact that the nature of the evidence for these groups in the Eastern and Western Mediterranean is not comparable. For the East, we have archaeology and contemporaneous texts, while for the West, we have archaeology and late written sources. This divergence makes it likely that the debate between opposing positions will continue for many years to come. Although one cannot help but to imagine that this were indeed the case, much like the Odyssey which inspired it, it is an epic tale of adventure, action, and romance a story that lived through the ages. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off. <laughs>